We'll be seated, if you will. Open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 27. Excuse me, Matthew chapter 26. And we're taking a very brief deviation from the Gospel of John this week. And as I mentioned to you last week, as we're looking at the trials of Jesus, John only records the first of three phases of this religious trial that Jesus is going to go through. He has been arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, led by the chief priests and their temple police, as well as a Roman cohort. They have arrived in the Garden to arrest Jesus. And so now he is going to undergo two separate trials, one Jewish and religious, the other Roman and secular. And each of these two trials are going to have three separate phases in them, meaning that within about a 12-hour period of time, Jesus is going to face legal proceedings on six separate occasions before he is ultimately led to the cross. So this Jewish religious trial that we looked at last week, it began with Annas, who is the former high priest, and this takes place in the middle of the night. And this is an account that only John records. And if you remember from our time in the Gospel of John last week, it says that John was known to the high priest and he had access to the high priest courtyard area. And so perhaps that's the only reason that John records this is because he was the only one that was there. We can only speculate as to why John and John alone records this first phase before Annas. But then as we concluded last week, Annas sent him to the presiding high priest who was Caiaphas who had quickly convened the Sanhedrin at his own house and this account, this phase of the trial, phase two, is recorded in each of the other three Gospels. So Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin met a second time after daylight on Friday morning. Again, all but John records this third phase of his religious trial. So what I wanted to do from last week is I wanted to look at the second phase of this religious trial, and to do so, we need to turn our attention to Matthew chapter 26. So let's look together at Matthew 26. We're going to read verses 57 through 68, and then we'll divide this section of Scripture into four main points in our outline. Beginning at verse 57, those who had seized Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were gathered together. But Peter was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest and entered in and sat down with the officers to see the outcome. Now the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain false testimony against Jesus so that they might put him to death. They did not find any, even though many false witnesses came forward But later on, two came forward and said, This man stated, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. The high priest stood up and said to him, Do you not answer? What is this that these men are testifying against you? But Jesus kept silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. Verse 64, Jesus said to him, You have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He is blasphemed. What further need do we have of witnesses? Behold, you have now heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they answered, He deserves death. 
Then they spat in his face and beat him with their fist, and others slapped him and said, Prophesy to us, you Christ, who is the one who hit you? So the second phase of this religious trial takes place in the home of Caiaphas. And as we've just experienced, Jesus is going to experience undue abuse and ridicule that will only intensify as the religious trial ends and then the Roman secular trial begins. So number one in our outline, the council convenes. So verse 57 gives us a setting It sounds different from the setting that John gave to us, but verse 57 says, Those who had seized Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were gathered together. So in this one little verse, there's a lot more significance than you and I would probably ever realize not being Jewish and not understanding how a Jewish legal trial actually took place. Now, as we know, Caiaphas is the sitting high priest, And as the high priest, he holds the most prominent role in all of Jewish worship and religious exercise. After all, it is only the high priest who has the privilege of entering into the Holy of Holies on that singular day of the year and offers up a sacrifice of atonement for the nation of Israel. That's who the high priest is. It is a very unique, a very exclusive and a very privileged role within the life of Jewish worship. The scribes and the elders who are mentioned were the other most significant religious leaders in the day. Together they comprise what is called the Sanhedrin or the council. So this is where you and I don't have a very good understanding of what the Sanhedrin is or what it is that they do. So we need to have a bit of a better understanding about what this means. So, the formation of this council, the Sanhedrin, is based upon instruction given by God all the way back in the book of Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy 16, verses 18 through 20, this is what God says. You shall appoint for yourselves judges and officers in all your towns which the Lord your God is giving you according to your tribes, and they shall judge the people with righteous judgment. You shall not distort justice. You shall not be partial. And you shall not take a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and perverts the words of the righteous. Justice and only justice you shall pursue, that you may live and possess the land which the Lord your God is giving you. So this is prescribed by God all the way back in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy, before they had entered into the promised land, before the land was divided amongst the twelve tribes, before the people moved into the land and inhabited and set up life. This is what God has set out in advance of all of that as a way to preserve His righteous judgment executed by these righteous, devout men for the well-being of the nation of Israel. So as that was applied in practice in the nation of Israel, any community that had 120 or more male heads of families would then form a local council called a Sanhedrin. So there was a local council in any community where there were at least 120 male heads of household. So a local Sanhedrin was composed of up to 
23 members. So members of the local Sanhedrin were to be chosen because of their maturity and their wisdom. And then the great council or the great Sanhedrin, the national council, was to be composed of those who had distinguished themselves in a local council and had served a form of apprenticeship in the national council. So they just didn't arbitrarily pick and choose Joe and Bob and Mike and Tim and Tom. You're number 8, 9, 21, and 42. And so we're going to put you in and be a part of the Sanhedrin. They didn't do that. They evaluated these individuals. They looked at the lives they lived, that they were righteous and they were devout, and they were appointed at a local Sanhedrin. And after a period of just and trustworthy service, they would serve an apprenticeship and the great national council, and then and only then would they become a part of this great council, which is the national council, which took place in the city of Jerusalem. The great council was composed of 70 chief priests and scribes, and with the high priest, they would number 71. That is, the, that is how the great council is to be comprised. So the council in our passage that we're looking at here in Matthew is the great council. It is the national council, which was to be made up of the most distinguished representatives of all of the local councils. And these were righteous and devout men who were committed to dispensing God's righteous judgment over religious matters. That's who these people were, and this is what they were supposed to do. But in Jesus' day, the membership in this great council had degenerated largely into appointments based upon religious or political favoritism and influence. Think about that. Well, Tom over here, is the most qualified individual from our local council to become a part of the great council, but Tom doesn't have the influence. We need to get Mike up there. Mike's a real mover and a shaker, and he knows all of the right individuals to get things done. Isn't this how local and current politics work? And when you have a political structure that is corrupted in that way, what are you going to get? You're going to get a corrupt government. Well, what is going to happen when a religious council is comprised in the same method? You're going to get a corrupt religious council. Not thinking about God's judgment, not thinking about God's justice, not exacting out God's righteous judgment, but doing what we think and what we want because that is what is going to suit us best. This is exactly the kind of environment that Jesus is sitting in as he is being examined by this great council. So by the time Jesus' day came about and under the influence of the Romans, most specifically the Herods and especially the great Herod, they exercised considerable influence and control over the great Sanhedrin council, and even the pagan Romans would sometimes become involved in the appointment and the removal of a high priest. As I mentioned last week, 
under the Roman influence over the nation of Israel, and around a 60-year period, there were approximately 28 high priests. And under Jewish law given by God, a high priest was to have a lifetime appointment. Which means in a 60 to 70 year period, you might have three or four high priests, but never could you envision having 28. And that is because of the influence of the Romans. That is because the Jewish religious leaders who had become very shrewd and were thinking only about self-preservation would make deals with the Roman authorities so they could do what they wanted to do in terms of their religious exercise and worship. And because of that, they would make deals that were not righteous, that were not based upon God's justice, but based upon what they wanted and would benefit them. We will see this lived out in the Roman secular trial when Pilate gives them what they want. We'll look at that much, much later down the road. So, at this point in Jewish history, Jesus is sitting before a thoroughly corrupt great council most of whom had no interest in justice or truth or preservation of God's purposes in his established role of the council over the nation of Israel. So the council has convened at Caiaphas' house. Now, as we mentioned last week, there are significant problems with this council being convened at Caiaphas' house. So in order for us to better understand something about how this trial is taking place, what you and I would benefit from is thinking like this. Think about the Supreme Court of the United States of America. It is the highest court in the land, is it not? It is supposed to be the last stop in determining what our founding fathers had desired based upon how they interpret the words of the Constitution. And so as we think about how the Supreme Court functions and operates, this helps us to have somewhat of a better understanding of what the Great Council is to do. Now obviously there are things that won't compare apples to apples. The Supreme Court is political. The Great Council is religious. But there are similarities in how this council is convening this trial of Jesus in a way that our Supreme Court would never, ever, ever be able to get away with such a thing. So as I mentioned last week, there are several problems with this trial. First of all, it is a home trial, and I gave this to you last week, so it's not repeated in your outline. A home trial means this is taking place in the palace of the high priest. It's not taking place in the official court. And based upon Jewish law, every religious trial had to take place in the court. So imagine, if you will, that the Supreme Court of the United States decides to have a trial in the home of one of the chief justices. Well, you would read about that and you would say, well, that's kind of odd. Why would they do something like that? They're not supposed to do that. Holy cow, they're not even allowed to do that. But they're doing that. They're having a trial and one of these chief justices home. This smells a little fishy to me, right? Well, the second thing that we've observed from last week is that this trial is taking place at night. Based upon Jewish law, it was illegal to have a trial at night. But Caiaphas, because he is a corrupt high priest, 
has hastily convened the great council in his home in the evening, yet the Jewish law said that all criminals had to be tried in the light of day. So again, thinking about the Supreme Court, they're meeting at a chief justice's home, and as irregular as that might seem, they're having it at about 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning. Well, what are they doing that for? What is it that they're trying to accomplish? Why isn't this taking place in the light of day in a formal court like it's supposed to? There would be a very dark cloud of suspicion taking place any time a Supreme Court trial was held at a Chief Justice's home in the middle of the night. We would have all kinds of questions about the validity of such a trial. Thirdly, this trial is taking place during the Passover Based upon Jewish law, it was illegal to have a criminal trial during the week of Passover. But here is Jesus sitting in Caiaphas' home in the middle of the night on the week of Passover sitting on a trial for his life. Now again, imagine that the United States Supreme Court is having a trial in the home of a chief justice at 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning on a holiday weekend. You'd be saying, wait a minute, they can't do that. That is wrong. What are they trying to do? Well, this is the kind of scenario that is taking place. The Jewish Supreme Court, which is called upon to preserve and to determine God's righteous judgment, has violated the basic premise of what it is they are called to do. They are called to preserve justice. They are called to determine God's righteous judgment. And they have set about hundreds and hundreds of years worth of precedent that they have entirely thrown out the window to have Jesus on trial at the home of the high priest in the middle of the night during the week of Passover. And as all of this is going on, we read that Peter is nearby. Verse 58, Now Peter was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest and entered in and sat down with the officers to see the outcome. Now, Peter, excuse me, Matthew introduces to us Peter's following at a distance and this is going to lead to what takes place at the end of the second phase of the religious trial, and that is Peter's denial of knowing Jesus and of being a disciple and then of hearing the rooster crow. Now, as Matthew introduces this to us, it's obvious that we've already heard about Peter following at a distance and then being let in to the courtyard of the high priest and denying that he knew anything about this individual named Jesus, and then hearing the rooster crow. So as we think about what John has reported, and what we're reading now in the Gospel of Matthew, one might say, well, wait a minute, there's a discrepancy here. This seems to be out of sequence. Well, it's a very simple explanation. Let me try and help you understand what I think it is. Number one, John only addressed phase one of the three phases in Jesus' religious trial. He was potentially the only one there until Peter came in sometime afterwards. 
So, John includes Peter's denial after the trial with Annas has concluded. And since John doesn't address the second phase of the trial at all, it makes sense that John would include it here because Peter's denial is very, very important. Not only to what John, excuse me, what Jesus said at the Lord's Supper. Remember, this night you will deny me three times, right? You remember hearing that? And then what we would eventually read in John's Gospel later on in chapters 20 and 21, where Peter is restored back to the brethren. So this is one reason why it's a very simple explanation. John didn't deal with the second phase of the trial. He doesn't deal with the third phase of the trial, but he doesn't want to leave out Peter's denials. Now, the other three Gospels all address the second phase of the religious trial, and each of them talk about Peter's entrance into the courtyard and his denial, similarly to the way that Matthew has in our reading. Now, the third phase of the trial, which again, John doesn't address at all, and two of the other Gospels only address with a single verse, John wants to get this in. Matthew is dealing with it in a very similar fashion. It's likely the same event taking place at the same time reported by two individuals at a different point in their narrative. Some are holding much more firmly to a chronological time frame. John probably is not. Now the second part of this simple explanation is this. Annas as the former high priest and as the father-in-law to Caiaphas and as the rightful high priest in the minds of most Jews of the day, probably shared the home with Caiaphas. The priests, the palace of the high priest was likely a shared home amongst the high priest and his family. Now if you remember that Caiaphas had five sons and a grandson who served as high priest excuse me, Annas did, and now Caiaphas is the son-in-law, it's very likely that all of these lived in this very large palace. And so what is taking place here is again Matthew and John recording the same thing at different parts of an interval. So John's presence in the courtyard shared by Peter is reported to us in John 18.15. It says, Simon Peter was following Jesus and so was another disciple. Now that disciple was known to the high priest and entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest. Exactly the same thing that Matthew has just said. The difference is John doesn't record any of the second portion of the religious trial where Matthew does. So again, they're recording events from the same place at the same time. John just doesn't include the part of this trial in front of Caiaphas. So it's a very simple explanation of why John addresses Peter's denial differently from the other three gospel accounts. Now, number two in our outline, the council convenes, and now in our narrative, the council conspires. Verse 59a, now the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain false testimony against Jesus. Now this section of the trial also exposes a major problem with the trial. The council conspires against Jesus 
yet there is no formal charge made against him. So in the way that this would work in a, in a Jewish criminal trial is this. On the day of the trial, the court officers would require that all evidence against the accused person to be read in the full hearing of an open court. Each witness against him would be required to affirm that his testimony was true to the best of his knowledge and was based upon his own direct experience and not on hearsay nor on presumption. Witnesses also had to identify the precise month, day, hour, and location of the event about which they testified. So a counsel itself could never initiate charges against a person, but could only consider charges being brought before it by an outside party. So a judge in an American court of law could never bring a charge against an individual unless there was a prosecuting attorney who had already gone to a grand jury and already secured an indictment and had already established what the charges were and had already lined up all of their witnesses and had deposed them and now it's time for the trial. Isn't that the way it works in the American judicial system? Well, don't you remember that the American judicial system is based upon the Mosaic Law? It is patterned in a very, very similar way. So what we have here, as the council conspires, is they have no charge. There is no indictment brought against Jesus. In fact, they haven't even received testimony from witnesses. Some commentators speculate that some of the other religious leaders are out there knocking on doors in the middle of the night trying to find anyone who would be willing to testify about Jesus so they could bring a legitimate charge against Him. No charge has been stated. No testimonial evidence has been gathered or entered. But instead, the, the disciples record for us, but they have convened with false testimony. For this nighttime trial in the home of the high priest, how were they going to secure testimony of witnesses when there were never any charges filed against them? It is absolutely backwards to sit down before a judge and not have a charge and not have an indictment and not have your witnesses all lined up and ready to testify. So the implication from the Gospels is very clear, and that is this. The council has solicited false testimony to be brought against Jesus so they can get the outcome that they wanted from years ago. They are simply conspiring against Jesus. So imagine, if you can, that the Supreme Court of the United States is meeting in the home of Chief Justice at night on a holiday weekend and there's no formal charge, there's no indictment, and there are no witnesses, and their clerks are out there trying to find anybody who could validate any kind of a charge against this individual that is sitting before them. Now, in our judicial system, perjury is a very serious crime, is it not? 
In fact, if you were found guilty of perjury, you'll go to jail. Where do you think that came from? Let's go back and look in the book of Deuteronomy. (laughs) Deuteronomy 19. If a malicious witness rises up against a man to accuse him of wrongdoing, then both the men who have the dispute shall stand before the Lord, before the priest and the judges who will be in office in those days. The judges shall investigate thoroughly. And if the witness is a false witness and he has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him just as he is intended to do to his brother. Thus you shall purge the evil from among you. So in an American court of law, if you're on trial and you are supposed to go to jail as a result of the subsequent conviction, and yet somebody comes into that trial and bears false witness, they are going to be convicted and go to jail as well. This is exactly what is taking place. Here we have the keepers of justice conspiring with false witnesses trying to justify a death sentence. Second part of verse 59 and the first part of verse 60. They have conspired against Jesus so that they might put him to death. They did not find any witnesses, even though many false witnesses came forward. So the Jewish religious leaders were not allowed to carry out a death sentence while under Roman rule. But this was the predetermined outcome for Jesus. It was established all the way back in the Gospel of John in chapter 5 when he had healed the man who had been on the mat at the pool of Bethesda and he'd been on that mat for 30 years waiting to be healed. And from that very moment when Jesus had the audacity to heal that man on the Sabbath, the Jews were conspiring how they would seize him, bring him to trial, and then execute him. So this council isn't interested in justice. They only desire the removal of this man that they hate so much. Now we're going to look at this death sentence issue in greater detail in just a moment. Let's continue in verse 60b and 61. But later on, two witnesses came forward and said, This man stated... I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. Now, in our study of the Gospel of John, we know what Jesus meant when he said this. When Jesus entered into the temple of Jerusalem for the very first time during his public ministry, he overturned the tables of the money changers because they had turned his father's house into a place of business. Now, only John records the first temple cleansing, and only John records the dialogue that takes place after Jesus cleanses the temple. So in John chapter 2, verses 18 to 21, the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said it took 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Now we know that upon Jesus saying this, they have taken very literally what he intended to be taken spiritually. But even so, where is the crime 
And Jesus saying, destroy this temple in three days. Destroy this temple and in three days I will build it up. Even though the statement may have the whiff of something illegal, like a veiled threat, it sets the high priest off on a tirade. That brings us to number three in our outline. And that is the council confronts Jesus. Verse 62. So the high priest stood up and said to him, Do you not answer? What is it? What is it that these men are testifying against you? So what the high priest is saying is, we want you to answer this accusation. But what exactly is the accusation? Jesus made a ridiculous statement that he was going to rebuild the temple in three days. How can he ever do that? That's an impossibility. Jesus didn't make some kind of a threat that he was going to destroy the temple and then build it back in three days. So as you look at what Jesus said is recorded here in the Gospel of John, what is illegal about the statement that he made? Well, Mark repeats the statement from this witness a little bit differently than we see in the Gospel of John. And here's what's recorded in the Gospel of Mark. 1458. We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and in three days I will build another made without hands. So what this alleged witness has testified is inconsistent with what John recorded, and why shouldn't it be? What Jesus said was three years old at least, and would be highly unlikely that this man would remember it word for word, and it's even more likely that this man was not even here at the time Jesus said it, and is only repeating some elaboration of what he heard Jesus might have said on the day that he had cleansed the temple. But all of this doesn't matter. All that matters is the appearance of impropriety. So when the high priest challenges Jesus to answer this accusation, which really doesn't even exist, Jesus simply sits in silence. Verse 63a, but Jesus kept silent. Now, by Jesus not answering, he maintains his right in avoiding self-incrimination, which is his right, just as it would be our right in a court of law. We can plead the Fifth Amendment so as to not testify in a way where we would incriminate ourselves. By the way, the Fifth Amendment comes from the Mosaic Law. And so Jesus sits in silence, and he doesn't even dignify a response to the ridiculous accusation that is being made by this alleged witness. So now the real issue is presented in the second part of verse 63. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. This is what this trial is really all about. All throughout Jesus' ministry, He has affirmed who He is. He has very clearly stated what, where He has come from and what it is He has come to do and why He is doing everything that He is doing. So what the high priest really wants Jesus to confirm is this statement that he believes that he is the Son of God, the Messiah. So 
the high priest appeals to the most sacred oath a Jew could ever utter, and that is, I adjure you by the living God. So Caiaphas has demanded that Jesus either affirm or deny his Messiahship and his claim to deity. He was saying, in effect, answer my question truthfully on the basis that you are standing before the living God who knows all things. So if Jesus affirmed his deity, they would then be able to charge him with blasphemy. That is the goal. That's not the charge brought against him. There are not witnesses to testify against him. They simply want Jesus to incriminate himself to affirm that he is in fact who he claims to be, and that is the Messiah. To do so in their minds would be blasphemy. Now blasphemy was punishable by death. We read in Leviticus 24, Moreover, the one who blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall, shall certainly stone him. The alien as well as the native, when he blasphemes the name, shall be put to death. But a claim to deity would only be blasphemous if in fact it weren't true. And of course, in the case of Jesus, it is true. Jesus is in fact the Son of God. So in verse 64, Jesus said to him, You have said it yourself, nevertheless I tell you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Mark records the statement of Jesus a little bit more forcefully than Matthew does. Jesus affirms, I am. The ego of my statement that every Jew would understand when Jesus says that to mean that I am the great I am, I am Yahweh. Mark records it like this, and Jesus said, I am And you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. So what Jesus says is this, not only am I the Messiah and the Son of God, but one day you are going to see me glorified with my Father in heaven and returning to earth as your judge. He ratcheted it up a notch. Not only... Am I going to incriminate myself by simply acknowledging that I am who I am? I am giving you fair warning that when I come back, I am going to come back at the right hand of the Father's power and I will sit in judgment over you. Now when you and I read these words, we go, okay, I wonder what that means. Every Jew understood exactly what Jesus was saying. So again, the Son of Man was a commonly acknowledged title of the Messiah. It is one that Jesus often used in a way to describe himself and his own title. The right hand of power was a figurative designation of God. And because the ungodly members of the Sanhedrin had refused to receive Christ as their Lord and Savior, as he had compelled them to do all throughout the Gospel of John, they had sealed their doom to face him at the end time as their judge and as their executioner. The accused would then become the accuser. He would come and accuse them. And the judges would then be judged by him. 
So in the affirmation of this statement, Jesus has affirmed that He is who He is, and He has turned the tables on them by saying that not only am I who I am, but I will return one day and sit in judgment over you. Well, lastly, in our outline number four, the council condemns. Verse 65, Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has blasphemed. What further need do we have of witnesses? Behold, you have now heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they answered, He deserves death. So when the high priest tears his robe, it is a sign of repentance, allegedly. It is a sign of him pleading on behalf of this condemned individual. And in this, Jesus is now condemned to death. In their minds, Jesus has committed blasphemy and is therefore worthy of death. And since the Jews were under Roman rule, they were not allowed to carry out a death sentence. Now, even though we know in the book of Acts that they approved the stoning of Stephen, in the case of Jesus, they were not willing to hand out and to execute a sentence of death Because after all, just a few days earlier, Jesus entered into the city of Jerusalem to a parade-like atmosphere where the people were heralding him as the Hosanna, the one who comes in the name of the Lord. So the religious leaders are very, very shrewd. They don't want to risk revolt. And they know that technically they're not allowed to hand down a death sentence, nor are they allowed to execute it. And this is why they are going to use their Roman allegiances to carry out for them what they were not allowed to do. This is why Jesus' execution was a Roman execution, crucifixion on a cross, and not a stoning by the religious leaders. So they're very, very shrewd. They're very, very careful. But there's a little bit more about this death sentence that you and I are not familiar with. So by subjecting Jesus to death at the hands of the Romans, they sought to rid themselves of any responsibility by passing the buck. And they are going to pass the buck to Pilate, who is an unwitting player in this religious execution, who knows nothing about what's going on, probably doesn't really care at all about the Jewish way of doing things, And that's why in the end he's going to wash his hands of this and says, you take care of this yourself. Your blood is on, his blood is on your hands, not on mine. Well, it's also helpful to know about this formal guilty verdict that is going to end in Jesus' death is this. I need to read this because it's very, very specific and I don't want to miss something that's very important. Think about this. If one on trial was found guilty, the sentence was not pronounced until two days later, and the council members were required to fast during the intervening day. When was this sentence handed down? Immediately. Not two days later with the day of fasting in between. On the morning of the third day, the council was reconvened, And each judge in turn was asked if he had changed his decision. A vote for condemnation could be changed to acquittal, 
but an acquittal could never be changed to a conviction. Does that sound like double jeopardy? Right? Where does that come from? Our judicial system? So if a guilty verdict was reaffirmed, an officer with a flag remained near the council while another officer, often mounted on horseback, escorted the prisoner to the place of execution. A crier went before the slow-moving procession, declaring in a loud voice, this man is led to punishment for such and such a crime. The witnesses who have sworn against him are such and such persons. If anyone has evidence to give in his favor, let him come forth quickly. If at any time before the sentence was carried out, additional information pertaining to excuse me, pertaining to innocence came to light, including the prisoner's recollection of something he had forgotten, one officer would signal the other and the prisoner would be brought back to the council for reconsideration of the verdict. Before the place of execution was reached, the condemned person was urged to confess his crime. If he had not already done so and was given an, if he had not already done so, he was given an intoxicating drink to dull his senses and thereby make his death less painful. The governing principle of capital cases and the great council was this. The Sanhedrin is to save, not destroy life. Think about it. So as you think about what was supposed to happen when they reached this verdict of guilt on Jesus, there was supposed to be a two-day delay. There was supposed to be a day of fasting. There was to be a time to reconvene and confirm the verdict. There was an opportunity for other unknown witnesses to come and speak on behalf of the one who is about to die and give testimony that would potentially change the outcome. But the underwriting purpose of the Sanhedrin in a capital case was to save life and not destroy it. Of course, this was completely ignored since the Romans would carry out the death sentence in just a few short hours. And so the Jewish leaders were on their way to killing their Messiah by throwing out the door every judicial precedent they had ever known because they hated Jesus so deeply, they would do whatever they had to in order to rid them of his presence. You know, when we hear the statement, by any means necessary, it ought to cause us to pause and shiver because any means necessary means there is no justice. There is no due process. There is no proper procedure that's going to be followed. It is, we're going to get what we want and we'll do whatever we have to do in order to see this outcome take place. Well, our passage ends with these two verses, 67 and 68. After this verdict of guilt was administered by the council, 
Verse 67 says, Then they spat in his face and beat him with their fists, and others slapped him and said, Prophesy to us, you Christ, who is the one who hit you? One of the most insulting things that you could ever do to a Jewish person was was to spit in their face. But not only did they spit in his face, but as he's sitting there in an unjust trial, they began to unjustly and unmercifully punch him in the face, slap him and mock him and ridicule him. They taunted him with this call to identify prophetically those who were hitting him. And in just a few hours, they would hold the third and final phase of the religious trial when the council would gather back together in the early hours of Friday morning and confirm their verdict to execute Jesus to death. This is what begins the most gruesome experience any Christian will ever be made aware of, and that is the crucifixion of the Savior. Would you pray with me, please? Father, we live in an era where social justice and judicial justice is challenged regularly because of the appearance of unjust outcomes. And then sadly, we can say rightfully so. But we can also look at this part of the gospel story where the most righteous man was held in perhaps the most unjust trial ever and sentenced to death by the ones he had come to save. Father, we can never begin to fully understand all that takes place in the depravity of the human mind. But we know this. You sent your one and only Son to come into this world to die on the cross, to take upon Himself our punishment, to pay with His life our consequence, so that we might become the very righteousness of God. He gave his physical life so that our spiritual life could be made new. God, I pray that you would enable us to understand that with a greater intellect and a more open affection. and a more determined desire to honor and please Him with these physical lives that we live as we await for our home going. Father, we thank You that You are a merciful and a gracious, a long-suffering God who doesn't give to us what we deserve, but instead gives to us what we don't. And that is the forgiveness of the Savior who died in our place. Father, how we give you thanks for what you've done for us. How we pray that you would 
compel our hearts to live a life that is worthy of the calling with which we have been called, this call to salvation. We pray these things in Jesus' name.